Hey there, if you're listening to this and you support us on Patreon, you can hear it via the Patreon page and free. One, two, tres, cuatro. listening to Sound Opinions, and this week we're talking with Yola about her incredible album, Stand For Myself, and her acting debut as Sister Rosetta Tharp in the new Elvis film from Boz Lorman. I'm Greg Cott. And I'm Jim DeRogatis. We'll also pay tribute to our friend and fellow music writer, Chrissy Dickinson. But first, let's review some new music from Angel Olsen. I don't know who can see if you've ever learned how to let someone in. Well, I've tried to come find you, but I just don't know where to begin. If you've ever been open, there's no way of knowing. That is a little bit, Mr. Cott, of All the Good Times, the opening track from the new album by Angel Olsen, Big Time. Angel Olsen, born and raised in St. Louis, uh, began performing in that city's coffee shops when she was still a teenager. She moved to Chicago in 2006, working with the likes of uh, Emmett Kelly and Bonnie Prince Billy, and began recording uh, solo records. She is now on the sixth studio album of her career, the first set of original music since All Mirrors in 2019. We've been fans for a while. She was a guest on the show in 2014. Uh, She has made it clear in the uh, pre-release publicity for this album that it is both uh, not a country record and not not a country record. What does Angel Olsen mean by that? Let's play a track and we'll come back and give our opinions. This is Right Now from Big Time by Angel Olsen. About the feelings that I have I won't be with you That is right now from Angel Olsen's new record, Big Time. Uh, Jim, I'm going to lay my cards on the table right away. I think this is Angel Olsen's best record, um, mm. and it's, I, I think it's an amazing one. First of all, it's very much a statement of self-realization. That song we just played right now, I won't live another lie about the feelings that I have. I won't be with you and hide. You know, talking about coming out as as gay yeah. in in recent years, and and also just kind of owning her life in a way that she never has before. A very transparent, uh, personal record. You know, at the top of the record, uh, the very first song, I can't say that I'm sorry when I don't feel so wrong anymore. I can't say that I'm sorry when I don't feel so wrong. Uh, and then further on, at, at that song, Go Home, Forget the Old Dream, she sings, I Got a New Thing. 
uh, th these statements of, of purpose and focus, uh, combined with the fact that I think as a vocalist, she's always been praised, but I think there was some affectation to her voice maybe early on in her career. She drew a lot of comparisons to people like Roy Orbison and Patsy Cline, you know, that, yeah. you know, vibrato drenched in reverb. Tammy Wynette. And, and, you know, those are great comparisons, but I think she's come into her own as a vocalist even more so on this record. The strength of the voice, but also the ability to also be very quiet with that voice and still communicate very powerfully, very focused as a singer, more nuanced in many ways, uh, and making her statements with really unwavering uh, conviction. And then the music surrounding it. Yeah, there are country elements in here. There's pedal steel, etc. Mm -hmm. But I think the arrangements complement that voice very well. Uh, it's a very powerful record. You know, I, I really love that Sharon Van Etten record earlier in the year, and I would compare Great this record. one. And, and, and in fact, Sharon Van Etten and Angel Olsen collaborated on a, on a track during mm -hmm. the pandemic. This record similarly has that sort of emotional punch that communicates true conviction. Every word she's singing uh, means something to her, and she conveys that very well. Uh, again, I, I just think this is a great record from Angel Olsen. I agree. Uh, Angel Olsen is a fighter, Greg. Yeah. I had a dream last night. We were having a fight. It lasted 25 years. <laughs> she uh, sings at the start of Dream Thing. I had a dream last night. We were having a fight It lasted 25 years It was a waste of she is nobody's fool. She is self-empowered. She is brave. She is inspiring. Uh, I think you nailed all of the themes in the lyrics. I will add, uh, her mother and father both died of separate illnesses within two months e of each other during the pandemic, and uh, her first real romantic relationship, her breakup with a woman, came at the same time. Uh, Angel had a lot to uh, purge herself, to find catharsis in her music. What I'm most excited about, uh, before the album ends with Chasing the Sun, which is sort of a statement of, uh, I'm going to be okay, mm -hmm. and I'm going to follow my dreams, there are two extraordinary uh, songs that point to a completely new direction. Go Home, I think she's channeling Sinead O'Connor mm. with the sort of orchestral arrangement of the song and the just over-the-top virtuoso yeah. vocal. in the great Peggy Lee mold <laughs> uh, through the fires, right? She is showing us how much she can do with that incredible right. instrument of hers.
And you mentioned reverb. Yes. You know, there are certain things in life, Greg. Chocolate and peanut butter, gin and vermouth, mm-hmm. Angel Olsen, and the spring reverb. Mm-hmm. Right? I, I just, I, I said that once. I think she got a little snarky at me. I meant it as the highest compliment. I mean, it, it, it's wonderful. She could sing, I think, just standing next to us right now and sound great. But boy, uh, her voice in the studio on all of her records, but especially this one, pointing to those new directions. You know, who knows where she goes next? Next up, we have a conversation with Yola on Sound Opinions. I was a freedom rider When we thought the South had won Virginia in the spring of 61 Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we are back. That is a little bit of Yola in the title track of the High Women album from 2019. That super group, you may recall, uh, introduced her to many listeners. Uh, That combined with her solo debut, Walk Through Fire, which also came out the same year. Um, And then she followed with Stand For Myself in 2021. By the time she'd done those two albums, we were super fans. We interviewed her last August, and we're going to play it again for you now. That's right, Jim, and we're re-airing that interview now because she's in this much-anticipated Elvis movie from Baz Luhrmann playing Sister Rosetta Tharp. Thank you very much. I, I will <laughs> say only of that film that I wish the whole film was about Sister oh my Rosetta I, I with agree. Yola. I agree 100%. Plus, Yola was a joy to talk with, so why not give her a little more airtime? Yola, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a real joy to be here. Well, we are huge fans of your music, and congrats on this new album, Stand For Myself. It is truly, I think, an accomplishment. Uh, But I want to start at the beginning. You know, you have, in every interview, said you have loved singing. It has been your driving passion in life since you were really small. But growing up in Bristol, your mom was against the idea of, of you singing. You had to, like, do it on the sly. So I grew up in a small town outside of Bristol, Portishead, for the first, like, good 10, 11 years of my life. I spent all of my time in this small town. I was one of, like, five black people in the Mm. area, and we didn't have a car. (laughs) So Uh that isolation um, meant that I lent into music so much more because like that's where I saw people that looked like me mm. that were speaking on things that I felt. And so that was a really big part of my childhood was that feeling a bit less alone through listening to artists talk about their music and listen to their music and the lyrics and the melody and have that speak to me as a fellow member of the diaspora in a small town in England. Music can be a lifeline, right? I mean, it sounds like the, here was something you could you could grasp onto that was giving you sustenance and, and inspiration. Uh, were there any particular artists that, or voices or songs that really kind of connected? That, were there light bulb moments like, oh, this is, this is amazing, to the point where you say, I got to do this? Yeah. I think I was so enamored with the songwriting element of music. And so I remember seeing Dolly and being like, wow, 
Like she really is in charge of what she's doing and she's clearly fought for that. And I'm really impressed by what she's able to do. And watching Aretha play piano and sing and being like, wow. Okay, I think I have to do this now. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. uh, like, oh, okay, okay, so you can do that. Okay, that's blowing my mind. I'm like, but who sounds like me? Neither of those people sound like me. And then I saw Tina. And mm. Tina had the smooth and the gruff. And I was like, okay, I get it now. Okay, okay. So I've got a bit of that in my voice. Okay, so that's going to help me understand who I am and... I uh, spent a lot of time listening to hip hop because of the era as well and R&B of the era. And Mary J. Blige had the smooth and the gruff and she knew how to oh, give yeah. energy when it was time to give energy. And so many people of the era were singing like super smooth, like Aaliyah and all these people. And right. I was like, that's not, I can sing smooth, but like if you get me enough power, it starts breaking up. And so I was like, okay, so in lots of different spaces, you can have these voices. And I suppose when I, in the early nineties, you had like Brownstone and all these kind of church vocal groups, like the vocal group was like massive. And like, they all could sing the living daylights out of a song. And of course, like the score came out and the whole Fuji's thing and D'Angelo was out. And so that it was like, very artsy, but like a very artsy renaissance time to be kind of becoming aware of music and also seeing like the sampling era and like how people would be leaning into smoky and funkadelic and all of this kind of stuff in the era that I was growing up in the, at the same time yeah. as my mum loving country music as well. And so me getting into Shania and Dolly and into Emmy Lou <laughs> and into this stuff and also into Britpop. I just adored Blur and Damon Albarn. So that was the British kind of melting pot. We got a lot of stuff from America, but then we had this big Britpop re revolution as well. So I was like into that. I'm so glad to hear you say Blur. I mean, this, the, the fundamental divide among people are Blur versus Oasis, right? Yeah. And <laughs> Uh, I love the Blur people. Yeah. Uh, Yola. Yes, yes, I'm Blur people. <laughs> I want to ask you about two other names uh, that come up often when you're talking. Uh, one uh, uh, fairly current and one historical. I'll start with the historical. My partner, Mr. Codd, is too modest to bring this up, but he wrote a brilliant biography of Mavis Staples. Yes! And what, how that music fueled the civil rights movement. Uh, and I've, I've seen you name drop Mavis Staples. Yes, definitely. What does she mean to you in particular? Uh, so Mavis, again, me finding spaces where the gravel in the voice is celebrated <laughs> because yeah, yeah. of the era that I was brought up in and that whole, you know, the popifying of the voice started to become the smoothing out of the voice. And if you were brought up in church or whatever, I wasn't, but like, you know, for people that were, they would find that, that people were trying to kind of strip the kind of foundation of what they understood to be singing out of it to kind of homogenize and maybe even to a point whitewash. And I mm. found that somewhat harrowing. And, and so I gravitated towards people that had a little bit of the gravel in and helped me understand how to use my voice and how to lean into that part of my voice. And I think I really learned a lot from Mavis on how to make the most of that part of my voice, how to 
like celebrate it and uplift it when it's time to do that, you know? And mm -hmm. I remember hearing her sing, hear my call here. And it was so soft and it was not like you know her voice to be like most commonly nowadays. Like um, she was just so smooth. It was like, I wonder. And it was just so like pillowy soft. But then the next song, she's like, okay, here it comes. I'm going to get the revs up. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you know, oh, yeah. I learned, oh, yeah. I learned so much from her. And she, she taught me that the, the gradual kind of like, not every song needs it. Not every song right, needs a hundred percent. Right. And also like writing something that you feel like you can stand by. She feels away and she kind of like mm. really, manifests that and she'll sing it again and again and be like, no, I still feel like this, you know? And I love that. She told me a few times, I, I can't sing it unless I'm totally 100% invested in what I'm singing. I mean, mm -hmm. not ev every word had to matter to her. And I got the sense you got your foot in the door uh, in, in the music world uh, as a singer for, for DJs and stuff like that, producers, yeah. right? Massive yeah. attack. Yeah. And I read yeah. a few interviews with you, which were really great about you know, you felt like you were getting pushed into this 20 feet from stardom role where you were going to be kind of somebody's, you're always going to be working for somebody. Yeah. And that, when did you sort of pick up, okay, this is good, but I need some more of that Missy Elliott, I can control I gotta be the, boss. the whole project uh, vibe. When did that sort of click in? The dance music front person for hire dancing, da-da-da-da-da-da, and then just like <laughs> sashay off kind of situation was like always like a placeholder for me. It was like the trope of black lady singing house music was a thing in America and we didn't necessarily have the volume of singers that sang in that kind of way in the UK. And so my voice was somewhat of an oddity. It didn't fit into the jazz scene necessarily as much. Although I sang a whole lot of Ella growing up, and that was probably the closest I got because Ella had some gravel. She was sneaky like that. I love me some Ella. Yeah, sure. I love me some Ella. Ella got it. <laughs> yeah. She got it in spades. But it was like always trying to find a spot and like people were like, wow, you've got the gravelly thing. And you can do the big kind of screaming notes and that. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, we don't have a lot of people that can do that in England. I'm like, really? Cool. Well. I suppose I better do that and start charging, you know? <laughs> like. <laughs> They'd be like, oh, I don't know if I want to pay that. I'm like, well, feel free to ask someone else. Good luck with that. <laughs> so <laughs> so uh, I was just trying to ride that pony all the way to the bank for a while. And but I just like, you know, it was soul destroying. It's got to be real. Like some people I work with, I just I love them as people. But I was like, this music isn't speaking to me. Sometimes I got into a situation where it was kind of dancey, but also kind of like soulful. And I was like, I really love this music. But what they need from my voice is different. 
um, they need me to be like maybe more of that clean sound or more of a nasal mm -hmm. sound or just whatever I'm not. And everywhere I was was just somewhere, something that I'm not. And so I tried to kind of set up a situation in my hometown with some players and form a band. And like, we did that for a while, but the idea of me being the boss was something I was terrified about. With the emptiness filling my shadow You're the only thing holding me down My mother died of motor neurons disease and as I was watching her go down into the ground in her casket, the casket looked small and it looked like it was a joke. We had a difficult relationship. She had all the tenements of a clinical psychopath and functioned wonderfully in society. Society rewards those traits a lot of the time. Um, but she wasn't great with empathy. And so I was more thinking of the whirlwind that was her personality and how it boiled down into this somewhat pitiful box that could never quite compensate for what was lost. And I was like, this is not a dress rehearsal and I've got mm. to get on it. And I decided to pursue picking up the guitar more, playing more guitar and actually committing myself to learning it. I decided to start writing songs again. I hadn't been inspired to write songs for a while. Um, even like up until like 2011 might have been the last time that I wrote a song. And so then I was just like in this real like state of being uninspired like a writing block and I just felt freed in that moment that I just had to hmm. and so yeah I was riding riding on my motorcycle home because I've been a biker my whole life um or a cyclist <laughs> I'm, why is that not a surprise Greg no yeah. I, all right totally like yeah right. I, I yeah get that. and I was riding home and a bass line came into my head and it went I was like, this is a weird bass line to get the evening of your mother's funeral. It's a bit party, isn't it? But it kept coming. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so anyway, I arrive home and the lyrics start arriving and it's the song on the album, Break the Bow. coming into fruition wow. at that evening and I only realized that when we were putting it together and I was like I've always been writing this album wow well the recurring theme of stand for myself is about asserting your identity right first yes. uh coming coming to to grips with this is who I am what have I been delaying saying that for and then saying it loud and proud as possibly can be said this is who I am mm. Yes, it's very much that. It's very, this is who I am. These are the boundaries I assert to define who I am. This is the tenderness I think I deserve. These are the mm -hmm. connections that I yearn for. And this is the nuance I would like you to see. 
This is the allyship mm -hmm. I welcome, that I ask for, and that I hope for. And like, it's all of the nuances of the black lady narrative that maybe aren't really perpetuated uh, in place of the strong black woman paradigm or the over-sexualized black woman back paradigm or the mm. angry black woman paradigm that is perpetuated most in the era of protesting where no one's feeds have anyone that's melanated or with kinky hair until it's protest time, then that's literally all you see. And then they disappear again. And the erasure of like all of the nuance of the moments in life between that. And I've wanted to tell the story that is in between those moments. Yes, there's a protest song on this record in Diamond Studded Shoes. Yes, like there's a sexy song in Starlight. <laughs> yes, there are mm -hmm. these moments, but in my sexy moment, I also deserve connection and tenderness. and. Mm. In my real life, I attain that. So why not tell that story? <laughs> mm -hmm. And right. respect. Respect yes! at every it, one of those things. Yes, points. like yeah. a thousand percent, you know, and it's so important, you know, to be able to to say, you know, um, it's not just a trope that you're going to hear today. You know, it's going to be a nuanced story of an actual real person. Well, you know, that title track, Stand For Myself, that's a real tour de force. And, you know, it reminds me of what you were just talking about, like this nuance, this ability to sing soft and kind of deliver something. And then when the moment comes, let them have it, right? Yeah. And it, it builds and builds to that moment, and it just, just takes your head off. sentiment it was easier to give in than stand for myself that is a really i think that talk about a nuanced point uh so you're living your whole life kind of giving in and and conforming right and yes people don't like confrontation even with themselves right <laughs> so where do you where how do you figure that out how did you sort of say i like you said your mother's funeral was kind of like an eye-opener but you know here we are eight years later and that song comes out yeah so it was a process right it was a it's a process it's an all therapy yeah. a process yeah. <laughs> so i think like between grief counseling and just i call it the 29 panic um that people get to 30 and they start going I don't think any of this is sustainable. And they start getting really panicked and they start making big cuts in their life. Like, I can't have these people in my life. They're toxic. I can't do the same. So people go through, a lot of my friends went through it at 29. And I think I went through it at 29 as well. I was like, this is all so toxic and unsustainable. And so <laughs> like, I started making some pretty severe cuts and I think like five people survived. And then I was like, who have I been talking to who's amazing, who just didn't demand my time because they were too lovely. That was kind of part of the process of that was surrounding myself with people who also agreed that I deserve nuance and mm -hmm. tenderness and respect and any form of empathy, you know, in the black woman narrative, like neglect is one of the most principal things you experience. Like everyone's mm -hmm. ready to neglect you. Everyone's ready to assume. And that is the, the kind of the caveat 
of the strong black woman paradigm is that you're seen as invincible, therefore able to endure all of the most dreadful things on planet Earth. Let's throw them all at her now. And then, yeah. and, yeah. <laughs> and then we can relieve any work we might have to do for ourselves regarding our bias, because as very astutely put by Greg, people especially don't like to have confrontations with themselves. Like some people may be more willing to have confrontation with someone else so that they don't have to have a conversation with themselves. Yeah. Because paradigm yeah. shift is the hardest thing to achieve. And that's really what that song is about. It's about paradigm shift. It's about actually changing the way that you process information that you think and being less based in the amygdala and more in the prefrontal cortex. And oh, so... Right. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are schooling us on we everything. Now it's, now it's biology yeah. time. Yeah. Yes, exactly. it sure is. But, you know, uh, they call it amygdala reflex, that when you're like, you're being reactional, it's all based on fear and that primordial brain. And like people are encouraging people to that primordial brain and away from the analytical and that's what kind of boosts cortisol and it's not helpful well as you said there is a couple of great uh, protest songs on this album you're sitting talking to us in nashville you mm -hmm. have experienced the harshest uh, experiences you can have in the uk whether it was small town racism or living for a time homeless in london yeah. mm -hmm. i'm wondering uh yola about your perspective as someone who knows both of these worlds uh the u.s and the united kingdom about this black lives matter moment and this new racial reckoning how do you see it in my mind uh obviously i always think this is an even more interesting question to talk to with someone like Mavis Staples, who's been there so, like yeah, yeah. marching. I don't marching know. with Dr. King. With I know, Dr. Right. King, I wonder how you maintain such belief for such a long period of time. You're like, this yeah, time right, we're yeah. gonna do it. This time, hey, okay, it mm -hmm. wasn't this time. This time we're gonna do it. Okay, it wasn't that time either. How about 50 this years, 60 <laughs> years, I know. Is, Shouldn't this it, be done? Should, yeah. Well, yeah, but also like, I'm an English woman. And so I've come from the OGs. Like you guys think you got it locked on racism. Oh, hell no. <laughs> it came from us. We gave birth to you. We were like your tiny Mima. You're like a six foot eight grandchild. Like he was just. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? We're and like, then the Zulus <laughs> showed those Brits at Ice and Luana and exactly. Rock Strip. Take that. Take yeah. that. And it's and and they did, but the funny thing is, is that the way that we experience it in the UK is just different. We don't like to address things. So the idea of the worst thing we can do is address ourselves in any film confrontation is especially poignant in the UK. Sometimes, especially where I was growing up, I would find people were in complete denial of the existence of a problem. And when people were dying or being killed, they'd just be burying it. So it would never be anywhere, even near local news. And recently we've been seeing with BLM UK, them bringing some of these stories to light and they go, wow, that's a lot of people dying in the UK that are black and brown, mm -hmm. but you don't hear about it as much because we're far better at getting people to buy in and to brainwash because you get them in the mind first. You don't need anything else. You don't even need guns. Ha <laughs> ha! 
We'd rush yeah. to do it yeah. minus guns. You think we ain't good? We're the best. We're the best. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting to hear that perspective, that at least in America we're talking about it. Yeah. It makes a, such a massive difference that the second that you could, people are released admitting that it's there and it's real, you can actually find people who want to address it and then just work with them. If people are in such mm. denial that it doesn't exist or are like, oh God, that was awkward, even address, oh God, no, like then you'll always have someone there like with uh, unchecked bias waiting to affect your life. And for me, that has worked out extremely badly. <laughs> After the break, we'll continue our conversation with Yola and discuss her 2021 album, Stand For Myself. That's next on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. He's Greg Cott. This week, we're talking with Yola. Let's jump right back into the conversation. I remember you walking out on that stage at South by Southwest in 2019, like a month after Walk Through Fire was released with a guitar and just that's it it's going to be this singer and this guitar and her songs and the whole room is just like wow this is incredible but i didn't see that artist in 2019 as good as that record was making this kind of record this year like i was kind of blown away by like wow this thing is just exploding and i'm kind of trying to put my finger on it yola um same producer, Dan Arbach, you know, Nashville, whatever, recording sessions, right? What happened? I think it's a big leap. It's a big leap. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're 100% right. It's a massive leap. You've missed nothing. You're like, lyrically, it's a massive leap. Melodically, it's a massive leap. You're missing nothing. You've nailed it. You're right. And the difference is... <laughs> and she'd let you know if you were wrong. I would. I would. Here's what's different. The pandemic. And also, being in this country. So I mm -hmm. lived in the UK right up until, like, let's say, January 2020. I was on tour here for two months. And then the idea was that I was going to, like go on tour with Chris Stapleton and we did do one show and then I was going to go back to the UK and figure out whether I was going to split my time between here and the UK or move completely. I wasn't sure yet. Anyway, obviously the after March didn't really happen. <laughs> and so Could, you couldn't mm -hmm. go back if you wanted to, right? No, exactly. And I did need to make a record. So I couldn't actually go back because otherwise there would have been definitely no record at Easy Eye Studio in Nashville. So <laughs> like mm -hmm. um, I had to stay. And so inevitably, by the time we got to like six months into it, I'm like, I'm now clearly moving here <laughs> because <laughs> we're now getting the idea that this is going to be long. So I live here. It's too late. So <laughs> it was a matter of then figuring out how that works. And in that first kind of stint that we all did of being very isolated from each other. Like I had to be coming up with ideas. And the first record, I was commuting, doing the longest commute for, I know of anyone doing, from Bristol to Nashville on an airplane. And I would go into the studio and Dan would have a co-writer set up and me and him and the other co-writer would sit down, we'd write the song. And that would be what would happen on the day. I wouldn't bring anything I, we just made it in the room on the day. This record was the antithesis of that. 
It was songs I'd even played out to people. If I've been gigging up and down the UK, will recognize some of these songs because I played them, I've been working on them and they were changing as I was working on them. And so we continued that work and finished them, you know. I'm still in shoes. I started writing in 2017 at Aaron Lee Tasjian's house. And we were just talking about like everything that was happening in the UK and the US at the time. And it mm. just meant that that got more true. <laughs> that song just yeah. got more relevant as time went on. I was like, God, I'm gonna yeah. have to put this out. It's kind of like the most relevant thing I can think of right now. like um, a state of mind for me that had clearly been happening for a very long time. And, uh, mm -hmm. and so then all of these songs jumped out. I was like, I need to exist. I need to be finished. I need one. So I bring them. <laughs> <laughs> so I bring them forward. I'd be like, this has got fire. We need to finish it. And he was like, this is great. What does it need? I'm like, it needs like a bridge, okay? Or it needs like reworking the lyrics on the second verse. Like, I always get a first verse. I always slam a first verse. And, and then I'm like, help me sometimes. And I'm like, <laughs> I gotta finish, I need more. So that was part of the process. And then the other part of it was being alone, actually, mm. at five o'clock in the morning. And still, because I don't know if you saw my 2019 schedule, but it was a hell mouth. And so mm -hmm. I wasn't yeah. remotely feeling None of this got written wrote, written in 2019 because it was impossible for me to be inspired. And it wasn't like I was trying to write even. And I when I when I was like, oh, I wonder if anything's come out. It normally does. Nothing. And mm -hmm. so, like, when I finally got to this piece, it was like I had a backlog. And so ideas just kind of start coming and percolating and like. I can't go into the room with anyone else. So I have to create this thing and then bring it to people and go, I feel like this has got fire. Can we finish it? Or I, I feel like this mm -hmm. is just like a hook idea that we need to build an idea around. But like, so as a result, I'm responsible for way more of the chords than I was on the first record, more of the lyrics, all of the narrative, <laughs> way more of the melodics as well, because of isolation. Maybe hmm. So the pandemic was good. Was good for at least one thing. Yeah, it was. We got the best it, out of Yola when the world ended. Mm -hmm. Kind of. Yeah, right. yeah basically, it was yeah. maybe a skosh, <laughs> a skosh less collaborative. Um, and so, if you like this, you like my musical journey through life because you hear bits of things like a countrified and whatever you want, but you also hear Britpop and whatever you want, and they sit together, and you're like. How do they sit together? I'm like, an English person can do this because I heard them. It was my life. I understand. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, yeah. and so that's, they're the things that you'll hear in the melody or in something that like maybe you won't have had the chance to hear in the first record because we were just all sitting in the room making it all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yola, let me, let me ask you uh, a question. Uh, it's unimaginable to me that uh, anybody will not love this record, but if a critic did, I could hear them uh, attacking you on the look, the production aesthetic, uh, sometimes the sound is kind of rooted in a certain 60s ethos. 
right? Northern Soul, they would have called it in, in, in Britain, right? Yeah. Uh, but that was just them loving Motown and uh, Philadelphia Soul and Stax Volt, right? Um, uh, so if someone threw at you, why are you always looking backward to that era? Which I think the record is timeless. Like you just said, we can hear all of these things. But if they wanted to typecast you, and, and uh, the music industry is notorious for this, you're standing for yourself. That's the title of the album. Uh, but they always want to put you in a box. They really do. And I've named myself as genre fluid for exactly that reason. Like, it's very much of my life and of my time and of my experience of sitting down with my mother's records being isolated because we were isolated. If anyone finds issue with the story they just don't like me as a human being and that's fine screw them <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep if you're like could you be this now who's saying this what's the percentage of critics that are white males yeah Lots. Uh, a disgustingly embarrassingly large percentage exactly yeah. so if we're navigating that i think you should be this i'm like uh according to whose lens that's problematic. Why do you have an issue with my connection to the diaspora? And what qualifies you to comment on that? That would be yeah. my first question, because clearly I have a connection through my mother. And now she's not here, that might be what's left of my connection. And yeah, yeah. so if someone has an issue with that, just knock yourself out, mate, like girls. Like, <laughs> Life is right. too short. It's too short. To well, I got to ask one one fluffy question, Yola, about okay. uh, the Baz Luhrmann movie. Uh, yes. You're going to play. You were S Sister Rosetta Tharp. I mean, who? You know. Okay, that's a natural fit. Rock I, and I roll think, I think you belong in that there. in that movie. Yes. So this exactly. Elvis biopic uh, got delayed by COVID, et cetera. Are, is it back on? Are you when are are you starting filming? What's 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 up with that? Okay, these are the things I can tell you. I've already filmed my scenes. Oh, yeah. Okay. We all went out. All the Beale Street Squad went out. That's wrapped. So these are things I can say. Like we've wrapped. Um, I shot my scenes. I some of the days were fifteen-hour shooting days. I had to learn to shred like her while simultaneously <laughs> singing. Because you know, most people, including Hendrix, would like shred and go and then sing and that hurt my brain so hard <laughs> <laughs> but well you're offering some great it. musical insight into sister Rosetta yeah. Tharp yeah. Right? what a genius like, she was right exactly that really like it felt like it was physical that I needed time to actually start that actual physical brain separation so I could sh like think about playing the guitar singing what I had to sing, um, acting whilst singing, hitting my marks, <laughs> interacting wow. with Austin Butler, who's playing Elvis, interacting with Kelvin Harrison Jr., who's playing B.B. King, interacting with um, Alton Mason, who's playing Little Richard. I've got to be eye-banging these people and like actually having reactions and interactions whilst I'm shredding, whilst I'm singing at the same time as shredding. <laughs> and I've never done that before in my life. So when you wow. see me land these, and I do land them, when you see me land them, note how many hours that must have taken during the pandemic <laughs> to get to that point. <laughs> well, no, you know, there is that complicated seducing you 
and kicking you in the nuts. Yes. Don't mess with me, <laughs> right? And you, Richard, you think you got this. I'm better than you, right? Well, I can shout louder, I can be wilder. She discovered him. That was the thing that was interesting. And then while well, like, that makes so much sense because of the 50s, a white guy isn't discovering Little Richard no. with his makeup no, no. and how like his yeah. flamboyance yeah. and his borderline kind of queer like energy, yeah. you know? I'm like, yes, a queer woman would be like, oh, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> and so- Yeah, yeah right, right. <laughs> and they, so they I related was like, to each other. Exactly, so I'm like, how does this guy exist in this time? Oh, oh, so then yeah. we don't even get Prince if we don't get Sister Rosetta. Okay, these are the things that like you had to kind of study to be to embody and to like understand the power that you hold to bring that through the camera, you know. And yeah. so yeah, like it was a lot of work. So when when it. <laughs> I, I, I am much. certain you nailed it. I know. If you're telling us you nailed it, then I bet I, you nailed it. Wow. I had to say, play these solos for 15 hours straight. So. What I did on my time off, you, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you basically reinvented your entire career. Other people okay. bake bread. <laughs> yes, you know. We can't wait, Yola, until we get to see you play these songs live. It's an extraordinary oh. album. It's a great accomplishment. You are 100% yourself. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me. This has been an utter joy talking to you today. Oh, very good. Thank well, you, Yola. It was our pleasure. That wraps up our conversation with the incredible Yola, and now we want to hear from you. Have you seen the new Elvis movie? What would you think of her, and what do you think of it? Leave us a message on our website, soundopinions.org. Now, Jim, we've got some uh, sad news. We recently lost a fellow music writer, Chrissy Dickinson, and I'd like to pay tribute. I had known her for 30 years. I hired her to write at the Chicago Tribune back in the early 90s, and, you know, I saw her as a singular voice being able to assess country music yeah. with a clear, unvarnished eye. She was not one to favorites or, no, no. you know, uh, Chrissy called it like she heard it, and she was a very astute listener. I, I will tell you, Greg, uh, I edited her along with my wife, Carmel, and uh, we put her in her first appearance in a book. Talk about going after heroes. Kill your idols. The idea was every writer who contributed wrote about an album universally considered a classic by baby boom writers and we generation x punks thought that they sucked she took on no less a force than graham parsons grievous yeah. angel <laughs> interesting yeah you know and chrissy knew her stuff in country uh, she was in a series of punk bands in indiana while attending indiana university started uh, some amazing groups altered boys glass factory and sally's dream sally's dream actually opened for Ten Thousand maniacs you know, mm -hmm, they, they, mm -hmm. they got some gigs, but at the same time developed this voice as a writer that I just thought was extraordinary. And and she later went on to do great work as the, the critic at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch mm -hmm. and then went on to edit the Country Music Hall of Fame's Journal of Country Music, where she wrote a groundbreaking piece. This is in the late 90s, mind you, about LGBTQ country artists. Yeah, yeah. You know, which wasn't exactly Nashville's cup of tea back then. Nobody you know? was talking about but it in the 90s. She was talking about this rising movement in the ranks and consistently championed the underdog. Uh, her advocacy for women artists was second to none. 
And I was able to start editing her again when she came back to Chicago in the 2000s. I hired her to write for the Coda Collection, which I now am editor of. She did remarkable work. She was the first person that put the name Miranda Lambert in my head. Mm, yeah. 20 plus years ago, she was saying, you got to pay attention to this artist. She's going to make some waves. Lo and behold, she did. I sent Chrissy out on assignments to cover Miranda, interview her. She knew her very well. And, and she wrote this brilliant piece for Coda Collection. One of the last things she wrote for me was about a film of Miranda Lambert performing. The, the description that she gives here, I need to read a little bit of this. The singer-songwriter had hit a collective nerve. She was a tough-talking confidant, a relatable hellraiser, the kind of best friend who holds your hair back when you get sick in the ladies' room for one too many jello shots. <laughs> it was a girl thing, and I understood the feeling. I mean, she's describing Miranda Lambert, but she's also describing herself. I, I will, that was the kind of person Chrissy was. I will tell you, when Kill Your Idols came out, several of the Chicago-based writers and I did a panel at uh, Quimby's Queer Store, and I am still shaking off the hangover I got going out to drink with Chrissy after that night. <laughs> Chrissy could handle it, I tell you. I want to play a track in tribute to Chrissy, who died at the age of 62. It was a shock to us all. It was such a sad day, but man, oh man, the writing lives on, and if you yep. can, uh, go seek it out, because it's just incredible. Gunpowder and Lead is the song I want to play from uh, Lambert's 2007 album, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. The fateful day when a battered woman decides to defend herself against her abuser. Chrissy championed this artist, this kind of protest, and I think this song kind of sums it up in a way. Gunpowder and Lead from Miranda Lambert on Sound Opinions. I'm going home, going home my shotgun, way by the door and light a cigarette. He wants a firewell, now he's got one, and he ain't seen me crazy yet. Slapped my face and shook me like a ragdoll, don't that sound like a real man? I'm on the shore. Miranda Lambert, Gunpowder and Lead, in tribute to the late, great Chrissy Dickinson, our friend. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we love our list. Mid-year, yeah. end of the year. It's favorite albums of 2022 so far. That's going to be on next week's show. And this week on our bonus podcast, I added a song to the Desert Island Jukebox. I can't wait to hear it. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill, Alex Claiborne, our associate producer, Sol Delgadillo, and our social media consultant, Katie Cott. 